This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Here we are one more time, Dr. Charles Parker with Core Brain Journal, and we have a very interesting timely guest tonight. She is going to talk to us about a methodology of actually working with uh, clients in therapy, the schema therapy, which I'm looking forward to listening to and and, uh, hearing about. And then she's also going to take the time to tell us about a very topical subject, narcissism. And she's not only going to talk about it, she's going to give us some very specific examples of how we personally can disarm the narcissist in, in our own lives. So, Wendy Bahari, thank you so much for joining us. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Hi, nice to be with you, Charles. Thanks for coming on board. So, we're going to say just a couple quick words on the front end here, and then we'll go back and we'll be introducing Wendy in just a moment. Core Brain Journal is supported by Direct Health Access Laboratory. With over 3 million studies, they're deep leaders of experience with the big picture of measuring, for example, methylation, cryptopyrrole, and copper challenges, all of which dramatically affect brain function. We're in a molecular world, folks. So they have a global service. They can work with people in Nigeria. They can certainly work with you in Fargo. So they global service with a molecular focus for more information and laboratory details, go over to dhalab.com forward slash core. That's singular, dhalab.com forward slash core. Core Brain Journal is also supported by the nonprofit Barry Robinson Center teams in Norfolk, Virginia, who provide residential care on an evolved family, interpersonal, and also global level. They're very TRICARE friendly. Barry Robinson Center provides a holistic environment that sets children, teens, and families on the path to a more comprehensive healing where they actually measure biomedical reality as a contributing factor to getting well over there and getting balanced in their lives. From personal experience, I know their work with families. We've shared a truly different residential treatment center. For more information, go to Barry Robinson, B-A-R-Y Robinson.org forward slash core for more information. So with that, let me introduce you to Wendy. I'm excited about listening to her and talking with her. Uh, It's very interesting because she has 25 years of postgraduate training and advanced level certifications and is the founder and director of the Cognitive Therapy Center of New Jersey and the New Jersey Institute for Schema Therapy. I said we're going to be talking about it. We'll be into it in just a moment. She's been treating clients, training professionals, and supervising psychotherapists for more than 20 years. I talked to her offline. She's energetic. She's entertaining. It's going to be very interesting. She's also on the faculty of the Cognitive Therapy Center and Schema Therapy uh, Institute of New York, where she's trained and worked with Dr. Jeffrey Young since... 1989. Wendy is a founding fellow and supervisor of the Academy of Cognitive Therapy, originally founded by Aaron T. Beck, and she was also the president of the International Society 
for schema therapy, ISST, from 2010 to 2014. And what we're going to talk about, the second thing we're going to talk about is that she's the author of the book, Disarming the Narcissist, Surviving and Thriving with the Self-Absorbed. Does that ring a bell for anybody? It's now been translated into 10 languages. She's been very actively involved on uh, talk radio and uh, interviews. And she has a specialty in treating narcissists and the people who live with and deal with them. She's an author and an expert on the subject of narcissism. She's a contributing chapter author of several chapters on schema therapy for narcissism. She lectures both nationally and internationally on the subject of schema therapy. So it's going to be very interesting because we're going to understand how we can actually get through this problem into a different kind of conflict resolution. So looking forward to it, Wendy, this is going to be so interesting. So how in the heck did you decide as a professional, I'm going to go down this really difficult, challenging path with so much denial and so much manipulation? How did you decide to do that? <laughs> Sounds like I'm a masochist, doesn't it? <laughs> I, uh, I often say I, I chose this specialty because narcissistic people never call you. And uh, <laughs> there's some truth to that. Isn't it? Yeah. The thing, is, the thing is, once they actually start reaching out to you, it's part of your progress. You know, it's like a measure, it's part of a measuring stick for progress. I, I, I stumbled upon it like anyone else, I think, in when you're dealing with really difficult populations and you find yourself suddenly as if hijacked, where you know your voice is gone, your sense of, of your own rights, your sense of being able to state things as they come to you. I just found myself way back when in the face of this individual who I didn't even know what to call it at the time, but I was giving in, I was apologizing, I was saying yes when I wanted to say no. And I was really fascinated by my own responses because this was a familiar feeling, but it was really old. It felt you know, like it came from the dark ages of my early life experience where you know that little girl in me might have reacted that way to circumstances i was in catholic school in the 60s and it was a kind of rough one so you know that's the way i would have reacted but i was really fascinated by the fact that i was so activated that i entered into this time warped space or what some would call the unconscious world implicit memory function was activated and there i was responding this way. So with a lot of curiosity and intrigue, I went about, you know, I was working with Jeffrey Young already, and we were looking at an approach to treating narcissism. And so I learned a lot about me. I learned a lot about them. I learned a lot about these different ways in which they show up and how narcissism manifests itself in the world with others and um, have since evolved uh, a practice and a specialty in being able to work with them and the offended parties that deal with them. Well, you know, it's interesting, Wendy, because all of us are children on a certain respect uh, when we think about it. You know, we're innocents in terms of m multiple realities. I'm an in innocent with you right now. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. And the issue then would be how we work together if uh, somehow in the process, uh, either I would attempt to infantilize you or you were attempting to infantilize me, we would, in our maturity, 
understand it and we'd have a reaction to it. But what happens when you're younger, you have to go through those experiences. I know I had them myself. We were talking a little bit about it online. And then you come out the other end and say, hey, that's what that was. But it does, it is a painful journey because all of us want to really be balanced, love our fellow man, and really try to uh, resolve the conflict with really, without really fully understanding what's going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think that when you have your, when you are fortified in this, what I call the healthy, sturdy adult mode, it's a term that's very popular in schema therapy because we look at personalities and dimensions or modes. So when I'm sitting in my adult mode, and I'm mindfully aware of myself getting triggered, even in a conversation. I could be triggered in this conversation with you, Charles, or you with me. But if there's an awareness of that, then there's also a part of me that it can be attending to that side of myself, meaning I can be protective and aware that this vulnerable aspect of my personality is maybe giving me some important information or may just be getting tricked by, you know, the usual stuff that happens with the brain when it can't between then and now situations because something in the system has, you know, has sort of opened up memory and we get fooled at times. We forget that I have power now. I have resources now. I don't have to say yes when I want to say no. I have rights too because, you know, when we're little, we're so limited in terms of what we can do and how we respond to the universe. So, you know, when we get triggered, it's as if we have forgotten that our feet are on the ground and we have these capacities as adults to be able to react differently because it feels like, smells like, sounds like, tastes like something from once upon a time. Yeah, and we go into automatic. I mean, yes, I've, I've certainly been there myself. And as I said a moment ago, it was a learning experience. Well, Tell us, uh, now I'm terribly interested in this next aspect because I know a little bit about cognitive therapy, but I really know very little, nothing about schema therapy. I know a little bit from the point of view of what you just said and from uh, some things I've heard, but I'd love it if you could just give us and me, our audience and myself, uh, a little more of a grid, the operational grid, so we can understand those uh, the effectiveness and how that actually takes place. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we all, let's start with, we all have schemas. And so what are they? They are basically in a, in a real simple um, kind of quick and easy definition, life themes or life scripts. So, it, but they're not just scripts like beliefs, thoughts that we would think about when we see, when we think about cognitions. Schema therapy evolved from cognitive therapy. It, it emerged from cognitive therapy where Jeffrey Young was a researcher in the depression study with Dr. Beck and finding that these really deeply entrenched core life themes that had strong emotional and bodily sensation as well as thoughts and beliefs attached to them and behavioral inclinations attached to them could get activated and standard protocols of just maybe talking yourself through it, looking for differential attributions, looking for more accurate ways of being able to see what you were feeling, ascribe new meaning to it, wasn't enough. So in other words, the patient could say, yes, I know I'm really not ugly, that I know I'm not stupid, I know I have friends, I know that, but I still feel so broken. I feel defective underneath. Mm -hmm. So schema is this, you know, it, it, they usually form when, un, when emotional needs have not been met adequately. And 
so we developed these, for example, these life themes that might be something like, um, well, I'll use one that's very common with narcissists, you know, these big blustery personalities that are larger than life, highly entertaining, charming, controlling, degrading, demeaning, at the far end of the spectrum, even abusive. But underneath, there's this strong sense of loneliness and insecurity that often comes from an early experience where memory has laid down its tracks and there are life themes underneath like you can't count on people to really care about you people will use you and take advantage of you people will not be there to meet your emotional needs for affection and empathy and support um, you'll never be good enough you'll never measure up so this is the motivational driver in the schema underneath and they develop these very strong ways of overcompensating for it which we would think about as the narcissistic mode well you know you said something there I think it was very interesting and for those of uh, our readers uh, listeners who are not familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy what Wendy was talking about there as she was giving an example was was really techniques that a person would do to under, understand their um, imbalances from a cognitive perspective without really dealing with affect. They would rationalize, not in a defensive way, but they would understand in a rational way, hey, that perception of myself is incorrect. Here's the correct perception of myself. And that would be more on the CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy side. But what Wendy is saying is that schema takes it to a completely different but inclusive level to include other brain functions like feelings and behavior. And because, you know, the three main brain functions, feeling, thinking, and doing, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy covers one schema. And, and, what, and what happens is, uh, Wendy's telling us, it, it cover, it was schema covers these other levels of appreciation. So how does one actually participate from a client point of view? What would they expect from a schema therapist? Well, they'd expect to be taking a look at their current life challenges and struggles and getting a sense of how familiar uh, their the ways in which they're looking at the world and responding to life events, whether it's relationships or it's work-related. I'll, I'll make it, I'll try to make this more specific to narcissism. You know, the problems come in are typically voluntary. They're, there's really someone who has insisted they come to therapy or they're going to lose that relationship or they're going to lose that job or they're going to lose their driver's license. Something's at stake and that's usually what brings them into treatment. So I, I need to start by getting a sense of all of the different patterns to how do they accept responsibility for the people that they have offended, the rules that they have violated the breaches that they've caused in contracts with others where trust has been broken. How do they feel about that? What about the feeling forced to have to come to therapy activates something that's familiar underneath? What about this kind of show-offish, charming, impressing me, approval-seeking behavior? Where did they learn that? So we're tracking and we're looking for links to early experience, links to the early construction of these ways of coping in the world. We're looking at what needs were not adequately met. And then, you know, we're offering to try to meet those emotional needs and, and, and heal that core emotional experience by way of the use of the imagination, the use of the therapeutic relationship 
to try to reparent and rescript the way memory has been organized based on facts, based on real experiences, but reorganize the way it's held in the mind. So in other words, you can go from this idea that nothing I do is ever good enough to I'm fine. I'm not perfect, but I'm fine. I don't have to be extraordinary. I don't have to win people's approval. I just need to be me. Um, I can count on others to know me. I can trust when people say that they care about me, that some may actually really care about me. So we're trying to create adaptive responses to these otherwise early maladaptive schemas that reside within. So interesting because it sounds like what's happening is what happens without the um, grid of really understanding what's going on with a lot of good therapists. I mean, they go back and and they don't have necessarily a specific grid of how do you understand where you're locked up, but they may in fact be applying a certain measure of what sounds like a kind of a cognitive behavioral therapy, but more inclusive regarding a num number of other uh, brain activities, behavioral activities that, that people have, so they can then grow from that experience and actually come in contact with who they are as a, uh, in reality. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it, I mean, schema therapy is an evidence-based model, and it's highly integrative. So in addition to this very robust conceptualization of each case, meaning understanding the, the links to early experience, understanding the unmet needs, understanding schemas that have formed as a result of these experiences, looking at the coping styles that coincide with how one reacts to the world, and the internalized, perhaps, voices of a demanding parent or an absent parent, um, as well as trying to tune in deep to that vulnerable part of oneself that got lost along the way and make you know, some kind of connection. We're trying to access this lonely little child underneath um, and be, to be able to, to heal those biased ways of experiencing the world vis-a-vis -vis others. So there's a rich conceptualization and then there's strategies for change, which, you know, welcome the use of uh, strategies founded in uh, EFT, for example, and CBT and in mindful awareness practices. And so we're highly integrative in that regard when it comes to the actual change practice. So please say some more about that. I thought that was interesting because as you just segue right into my next question, I think it's uh, terribly interesting. You just went right down there because that's what uh, the next question is. Be. If here's the kind of construct, then what do you do with it? And one of the things, pardon me, that uh, occurs to me as an individual who spent many years of my life studying psychoanalysis was the relative cathartic aspect of psychoanalysis it wasn't catharsis per se because Freud threw that out, uh, you know, in the early 1900s. But the idea of releasing an emotion and then learning from it so that it no longer was binding on an unconscious level. But it sounds like you're taking it even further than that in that the emotion comes up. But it sounds like the therapist, uh, the schema therapist would then say, Here's how you can use it constructively in the relationship. And here's a way to actually perhaps use it to negotiate better with this uh, other individual that you're dealing with. Hmm. Is that well, true? We look, it's, it's, yeah, it's, that's kind of true. I mean, what's happening is that 
once we are able to identify schemas, what you're doing is you're differentiating past experience from current circumstance. Okay. So you get that then now um, appreciation for what's happening. And in this capacity to really embrace that part of yourself who was doing the best that he or she could when they were just a little person. So we're taking this implicit material, we're making it very explicit. We want to pay attention to all bodily systems that alert us to the fact that we've been triggered, many of which be, are behavioral. You know, why is my, my hand dipping into the ice cream? Why am I picking up another glass of wine? Why am I, you know, suddenly scampering onto the internet for hours on end? Why am I showing off in this moment? Why am I trying to impress someone? So we're paying attention to ourselves because so, so quickly we end up launched in these coping modes. And then we want to track back and say, that, you know, I've been triggered, I've been activated. And, and then we need a healthy enough voice. So we're trying to expand and enhance this healthy side of the individual to be able to tell the truth, to be able to comfort, to be able to encourage expression of self if that's the missing need, to create stability if that's the missing need, to, to praise if that's the missing need. So wherever the emotional, the unmet emotional need lies, we're trying to use the therapy relationship as first, you know, the modeling of what a healthy adult or a good parent would do to care for that little one in the ways that they needed and didn't get adequately. So when people say, well, what are we doing in the past? You know, the past is the past. It's done. We can't change it. And I say, no, you can't change what happened, but you can change the way you hold it in your mind because just the fact that your father told you that you were never good enough doesn't mean he was right. Yes, he said it. We can't change the fact that he said it, but we can change the idea that he wasn't right. You know, so it's a whole idea of restoring truths, healing these, these biases and feeling them. So we have to bring emotion into this, not just an intellectual understanding, but really use the imagination to sink in and feel it. That is so helpful, Wendy. You know, as you're saying it, I appreciate the clarification. Uh, I'm thinking about others we've interviewed who do uh, who work on uh, dissociative identity disorder, where they have fragmented selves uh, in a more um, macro way. Uh, yeah. It sounds like what we're dealing with, or what you're dealing with, and you may be using these techniques with dissociative identity disorder. But it, what you're talking about is kind of a micro nuanced method of self-reintegration with original self-perceptions that were in fact constructive and positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a very keen way of looking at it. Um, we do have a modification on our model that is been very successful, at least according to my colleagues who are experts in DID, that's not my area of expertise, but very helpful, but just, you know, the very notion that personality you know, is, is multidimensional, that we have, doesn't mean that we're not conscious when we're shifting, but we're not typically conscious of what's at play or what's at stake or what's happening behind the scenes, even though we may be conscious that I'm suddenly in a very angry mode or I'm suddenly in a very inhibited mode or I've suddenly gone into this place just wanting to escape. So sense our movements, but we're not always aware of what's really playing in the scene in the background. And that's what we're trying to make explicit. And that's what we're trying to heal, if you will. Understood. It sounds like another dimension, another way to think about it from my perspective would be 
uh, that really what you're doing is helping people practice. And the triggering concept is a trigger is a reality that comes in. A person's having a reaction to that reality. And then the next level is understanding that reality and finding an appropriate adjustment to that triggering reality through practice, through, through working through whatever trauma occurred and what other uh, discovering that part of the self which has been left unrecognized or diminished through that previous traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can give a really nice example quickly of that based on what you just laid out so nicely. There's, if you think about, you know, I'm taking someone, let's say, into imagery, which means you're going into the imagination. You're, you're literally sort of hanging in to your imagination. So there's suddenly this theme of injustice in the room, injustice about the way one is being work or being treated in their love life. And that's the theme. I'll appreciate it. It doesn't feel right. There's no one there for me. It's always on me. The burden's on me. And that's the complaint. I take all that emotional energy. And in schema therapy, we would help this individual to sort of escort, be escorted back in time on this emotion and sensation, and where does he land? Well, he lands on the couch where he's a little boy watching the front door where there's no lock in a dangerous neighborhood, and he's home, and his mother is once again disappeared to be found, and he's trying to hold his little eyes open to make sure the door doesn't open and no one breaks in to hurt them. A lot of responsibility for a little guy. So what do we do in imagery? Well, we can't change the fact that it really happened. We can be sad. We can grieve. I can be supportive. I can step into the imagination as a, as a caring adult. I can bring my client into the imagination as an adult with this little person and have him just hold him, help him close his eyes and rest, be the guardian of the door for him for a little while. We could make believe we fixed the lock on the door just to create that sense of security for a few moments. But it's the whole idea of alleviating burdens that have been carried for so long in memory and the beliefs that everything that happens where there's no appreciation, no help, no support, that's just the way it goes. That's the story of my life. You know, we want to to kind of lift that so-called impermeable truth and make it more flexible. Well, you know that uh, empathic response, and we're going to talk about more empathy in just a moment because you and I talked a bit about it beforehand, but that empathic response that you have with that client and that sharing of emotionally holding that client while they're reconsidering the reality of that past event then gives them a borrowed strength to really then achieve a certain level of mastery that perhaps they never had in their lives before based on that perception that you have and the reintegration of the reality on a different level on a more mature, um, you know, developmental level. Exactly. That's exactly right. Sounds interesting. Sounds terribly interesting. Well, you know, we're going to take a quick break here. I have a question for you because this ne- these questions that we're talking about take me into other questions. And I'm sure a number of our listeners are thinking, narcissism, that sounds familiar. I think I've heard that somewhere before. Let me scratch my head and see where I've heard about narcissism in contemporary reality and the lives that we live in the television we see. Let's come back and talk about narcissism 
in the current uh, political scene and see what's going on there and how we could say any person, doesn't matter which person we're talking about, any person is demonstrating signs of a lack of appreciation for what's going on in reality and is narcissistically determined to do what they think is better rather than listening to the, uh, uh, the group, the, uh, the actual group missive uh, that, that they've been sent to do. I didn't say that very well, but I think we know what we're talking about. So, Wendy, I'm going to come back and ask you, so I'm going to try and reframe the question during our moment of silence here and come back and uh, ask you a question. Please comment on that when we get back. Let's take a break, folks. Well, folks, you know as well as I do that psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medication trials and those very, very brief hospitalizations, may prove insufficient to deal at home with the complexity of troubled children and, and those adolescents from 6 to 17 years old. Improved care, those next mandatory steps, should include a more comprehensive approach to address those multiple levels of challenges, from family to peers to school, diagnostically from defiance to depression on every level for families, including military families internationally. The Barry Robinson Center's 32-acre open college-like campus in Norfolk, Virginia, provides safety and security and clean, comfortable living. How do we know? We refer folks over there all the time, strongly endorse what they're doing. So for further information and informed interview, connect at this page, barryrobinson.org forward slash core. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing, now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's dhalab.com forward slash core. Now, folks, I was beating around the bush on that one, quite obviously. That's why I was dancing with words and didn't. St I stumbled over them a little bit. I'm not accustomed to dancing quite that. Uh, I was not adroit in that, in that activity. But on the other hand, I think what's happening is what we're really pleased to know is that Wendy is, has been dealing with this question already in a number of interviews. And really, I would like her to just come out and say what her thoughts are about the relevance of the concept of narcissism in the current political scene with individuals who don't seem to get their position in society but have a relatively fixed position of I'm the boss. Hmm. Could you comment on yep. that? 
I think part of the reason that, you know, we as professionals all stumble around that we have this ethical responsibility. And I think, you know, to some degree, rightfully so, not to diagnose someone who we haven't actually sat with, sat with and done a comprehensive evaluation. But That's then good. there are those who are just, you know, larger than life. And I think it speaks for itself. So I'll speak from impressions, okay? I can say 25 or so interviews later since the election, I have been asked to speak on the subject of narcissism and the political climate. And so if we think about someone, let's think about someone who is highly self-absorbed, lack of consideration for the impact of their actions on others, self-righteous, needs to be right, um, controlling, commanding, demeaning, uh, entitled, and, oh boy, I could go on and on. But I think, you know, this, this lack of empathy, lack of appreciation for what it feels like to be in the skin of another, how another might be affected, inability to be collaborative because being the captain of the ship at all times is, you know, first and foremost, regardless of consequences. So, you know, the idea of limits and consequences, which is so sorely needed for all of us to be able to live in the world successfully and get along effectively, this is missing when you're dealing with someone who is highly narcissistic. So I think we all know that we're, we're, we're in the middle of a very dangerous and serious problem in our country. Um, I talk about this with colleagues from around the world, and some of them can appreciate this because they're dealing with it too in their countries, but others are just sort of mystified of how did we end up here at such an extreme level. It's not He's not the first politician to be pointed at in this way, but certainly maybe the most extreme or the most classic when we think of a textbook definition of narcissism. Mm -hmm. So true. Let me stop for just a second. You said a word that some of our audience is not going to be familiar with. You and I are professionals, so we've heard the word frequently. We both know what we're talking about. But I think for those of the individuals who are relative innocence regarding um, psychological language, psychiatric language, let's talk about the word empathy for a second. And how can yeah. a person tell whether a person is empathetic or not? What does that empathy thing mean? How 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 does it display itself? What's the mechanism of empathy, if you don't mind? Mm, I really appreciate that question, Charles, because I think it gets so misunderstood. It's certainly misunderstood by many people who read my book who don't who don't read it thoroughly or carefully enough. And maybe it's part part of it's me. I didn't define it maybe as clearly as I could have, but empathy is not sympathy so when we think about sympathy we think about feeling sorrow for someone feeling pity feeling sorry for them when we think about compassion we we actually feel compelled to help to do something to come to the aid of someone to comfort so compassion is this sort of inclination to to do something in a behavioral way sympathy is feeling sorry empathy is neither Empathy can lead to compassionate expressions of comfort. Empathy can lead to feelings of sympathy. But empathy by itself is this very deep internal experience of the other. So it's me looking at someone in front of me in my office who has these high narcissistic qualities and trying to figure out how did you become you? I want to, I want to see that little person from start to finish of how did you come 
to grow up with these ideas about yourself, to develop these ways of dealing with people. Um, I want to get inside your bones and feel what it's like to walk in your shoes, to be in your world, not just intellectually, but really try to resonate with it myself. Narcissistic people don't do this. And part of the reason they don't do this is because anything intimate or personal or that close to the emotional world is very frightening for them. It's awkward. It's weird. They don't even know themselves well enough to be able to look inside your world and understand you. So it's a great missing piece when you think about relationships where two people can see the experience of the other, know the other, get the other, you know, well enough. Um, whereas the narcissistic individual just becomes incredibly awkward and, and inhibited in those circumstances. And they're defensive of the connection. They don't want the connection with the person who is like, for example, you're the therapist and they're there in the office with you. They on one level want to somehow feel better, but they don't want to connect with you to do it. They don't want to have you in their being. They don't want you to have a trial identification. They don't want to let you in enough for you to actually feel and perceive what they're feeling. So there's, this process of trial identification is really an important one in it because when we're trying to resolve something, you and I right now are having little trial identifications with each other. I'm listening to you. I'm appreciating what you're saying. I'm getting what you're saying because I'm, I'm with you in, in your mind. Really? I've jumped over in your mind temporarily. And, and then when I'm talking, you're trying to get me and make sure that I'm in synchrony. And of course you'll correct me if you feel that it's not quite synchronized then you need a point of clarification with me because that's the nature of our conversation is we're having these multiple trial identifications going back and forth but when you try to work with a person who is narcissistic i'm just saying this in a different way than the way you said i'm just trying to and i think what happens is that trial identification can't take place from a therapist's point of view and certainly that trial identification is not at all taking place on the part of a narcissist. They're not going to go over there because they've made their mind up and this is what they're going to do. So there's no reason for them to slip over into the pain, the sorrow, the difficulty, the discomfort, the lack of understanding, whatever it happens to be, of that other person across the room. They're not going to go there. So they don't want you to do that to them. They want to maintain the distance. Yeah, and there's also, to add to that, there's that big shame factor that lives, you know, at the heart of their experience, and they don't want to expose it, they don't want to feel it, it's unbearable. There's a loneliness, there's a shame, there's a sense of being flawed and broken. I mean, narcissists are deeply insecure underneath, and they don't want anyone getting that close to or having them expose that level of insecurity. So engaging in a conversation with you at a level of emotion or intimate you know, personal uh, sharing is is very frightening for them. They don't know that, but it is. I mean, they can also, you know, just distract you just by being very terribly charming and therapists can fall under the spell quickly or feel so horribly intimidated by them that, you know, they miss the boat completely. It's why most people don't want to treat them. Yeah, what they do is they change. I've had a number of interesting uh, professional relationships with narcissists. And what they're very adept at, which is really entertaining, is they, by their level of uh, intuitive entertainment, they change the subject. 
So what happens is if you get too close, they'll bring yet another person or another circumstance in and do it in some entertaining way that takes it away from you and me. And so then what happens is, and it's funny and it goes off, but they never get down to how they really felt. They'll give you nonverbal cues all day, but they're not going to say what it is. I think many times they don't even know what they're actually feeling and they're just waiting for somebody to uh, offend them in some overt way so they can take a stand. Otherwise they don't know what's going on. Exactly. They move right into the bully mode and anger comes easily, but other emotions do not. Other emotions remain sequestered and they will distract because it's a way in schema therapy, we call it the detached self-soothing mode or the detached self-stimulating mode. They look for stimulating opportunities and conversations and storytelling and, and, and actions they can engage in that will sort of keep them in a state of distraction, give them a little rush, but keep them disconnected from any painful emotions that might be occurring. Yeah, it's funny because the people that I've met, they, they'll quickly get into uh, the new car they have or their new yeah. title. You know, uh, mm -hmm. I've just been nominated the president of whatever, Timbuktu. And th so they're, they're changing, actually changing their persona while they're talking to you in an entertaining way to take you down a different path than the reality that was in the first part of the conversation. Well, I got so interested in what you were saying, Wendy. Tell us more about schema before we wind up here. We have a little more time. Uh, give me an idea. Do you have, how, how many, how does that whole, I'm trying to think of the number of personalities. I don't really know how to ask the question because I don't really have any idea what I'm talking about, but do you have like four, six, eight, ten 10 schemas that you are operating from? in schema therapy that are kind of representational of, of the nature of the conflict? Well, we've, we have analyzed about 18 early maladaptive schemas. So we have 18. People can have anywhere from 6 to 8 to 10 to 17 out of 18 schemas, depending upon uh, different personality types, personality disorders. Um, just about everyone has some some bundle of schemas that lives inside because, you know, it's just the, our temperament, our experience in the world, getting all of our needs met is a fairly impossible thing. So we may have them living inside of us. That doesn't mean they're active all the time. They may be only active as, like I was describing, under certain conditions where I got triggered as a, you know, a younger intern in my professional life. And there's places in our lives where we get triggered. Narcissists are notorious for triggering people. So you think you're walking around in the world feeling pretty sturdy and competent, and then all of a sudden, boom, you know, you, you meet with a narcissist and you can find yourself feeling things that you haven't felt maybe in years. And so schema therapy, we use a, we use a, a really beautiful strategy called empathic confrontation for working with this population. And I'll let you tell me if there's time to talk about Please that. Do. No, it sounds terribly interesting. I don't mind. We got, we got 10 more minutes so we can hit that. It'd be, sounds like fun. Well, it's just something I think that the, the listeners, the readers can um, think about as something to, to, to immediately kind of take home and graft it onto their own practice with narcissism. Empathic, the reason empathy becomes the golden nugget is because when you understand the makeup of someone with issues of narcissism, you immediately start to free yourself 
from casting the blame on self, on doubting self, on, on personalizing these issues. And so when you're free, you can look at this individual who has these issues and say something like, look, I know in your world, here's the empathy, right? I know in your world, you know, getting everything right, attending to all your tasks, things being very precise, it's really important to you. You were actually told that that's what you were supposed to do in order to be a good person. And in fact, you know, you do it amazingly well in your professional life where it counts. But in personal relationships, it has the quality of making people feel hurt. And I'm, I'm really kind of tired of it. You know, mm -hmm. it makes me feel disrespected and it makes me feel put off. Like I don't want to be close to you. So as sad as I might be about this relationship coming to an end, it feels inevitable if, you know, you don't get some help or we don't work on this. So there's empathy. And there's confrontation. It can also be something as simple as, you know, look, I know you're not trying to be hurtful, but that's really hurtful. You know, it may not be mm -hmm. your intention to be hurtful. Your mm -hmm. intention may be to really protect yourself and stand up for yourself, but you're doing it in a way that really delivers the message poorly because it just ends up being hurtful. So knock it off. You know, it's a, it's an empathy that, it, it sort of disposes of all of the typical opportunities for defensive reactions when you see someone for who they are and you're not blaming. So, you know, as a therapist, I'm very typically looking at my narcissistic client and saying, look, it's not your fault. Okay. You know, it's not your fault that you put together this way, that you learned that this is the way the world works, but it's not working for you in your relationships. And it's your responsibility to figure out if you want to jump in here. You know, if you want to team up with me and work on this, that's up to you. I'm not blaming you. Well, you know, this is where Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, comes in because mm -hmm. it's so reptilian and reductionistic in terms of diminishing the multiple realities that are present in complex relationships with other human beings. If you really can be reductionistic and, and negative, what the rationalization, I think, I'm interested in what you think about this. The rationalization for the narcissist is I'm correcting you and I'm helping you out and you deserve it. You need me to tell you how bad you are. And if I do that effectively, then on some level, I'm helping me out, of course, but I'm, there's the possibility I might help you out, you hopeless soul. <laughs> <laughs> As somebody just wrote about in the New York Times recently, I think it might have been, I can't remember who, the, who it was, the author, but it, they used the term the Messiah complex, Yeah, you know, yeah. the savior complex. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah. That's, yeah. I'm, I'm giggling because you're so spot on, Charles. It's so much about, you know, the narcissist can come across in a way that will slay you. They can slay your soul, but their intention is actually to protect themselves or to look good or to win yeah. your approval. Yeah. And, you know, so it's that whole idea of your message got lost in the delivery. Mm -hmm. um, and so I might even say, if, if this were kind of a role play, I would even say something like, you know, I appreciate that your intention is to be helpful to me. And that makes you feel good. And that makes you feel maybe even a little better about yourself because you're doing something special and you feel like you're shining the light on my problem. But you see, I don't really get that message. I know that's your intention because I know you, but I don't get that message. If I'm the common, you know, individual out there who's not trained in your issues, 
I just end up feeling put off by you because of the way that you share it. Wendy, that was so well said. It sounds like you've said that before. <laughs> no, that was that was beautiful. I mean, really, that was very empathic and very meaningfully said. I mean, you could see your connection with that, and you're really just putting out a nice red carpet for that person to to try to walk down a little closer to you to get the fact that you really care about them. And I think that's terrific. Yeah, it was just a real. I do. I care care about the suffering part of them underneath, the part that's struggling, that's tripping, that's falling. You know, it's hard to care about the narcissistic part because it's the part that actually hurts them and hurts others. It camouflages the part of them that is suffering. So as a therapist, that's what I'm reaching for underneath. Excellent point of clarification. Great conversation. Wendy, I'm sorry to bring this to a close. This is so interesting. And, you know, Folks, we're going to have the link to the book, Disarming the Narcissist, Sur Surviving and Thriving with the Self-Absorbed. Thank you so much, Wendy, for coming on and just giving us, I mean, the pieces that you've shared have been so instructive and so helpful. I'm sure a lot of people out there will just really, really appreciate the time with you. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. I enjoyed our conversation immensely. We'll do this again sometime. <laughs> you have a good one. Bye-bye now. Bye now. Thanks for listening to Corbrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.